of Psalms. Last week we um, covered, uh, go ahead and throw up the next one where we had like the, the uh, timeline for the, uh, well, not that one. <laughs> but uh, today we're looking at God in the crisis. And uh, it got me thinking about, I've always been sort of fascinated with like underground tunnels, caverns, that kind of thing. Like there's a whole other world, you know. I, I don't particularly subscribe to getting on my stomach with like a headlamp, not that kind of thing. I don't, I can't do that. Um, you know, crawling around, getting water, I, that's not me. That, I'm not super claustrophobic, but that seems, seems pretty nightmarish. But uh, I've always been fascinated by that, like Linville Caverns. You've been to Linville Caverns, many of us have been up there. And you see, uh, you know, this fish with no eyes and that sort of thing. And sorry to give it away, by the way, if you've never been there, but... Um, at one point, when you're, you're like, I can stand. I like that. If I can stand, I'm tall, so you, I can walk through that. At one point, though, if you do the tour, they, just, they turn the lights off. Yeah. You've done this? I mean, it is d- darker than dark. You can see absolutely nothing. And so you feel what? You feel panic. You initially feel <laughs> panic. It, it's pretty unsettling. And um, the, the darkness leads to panic. I remember when I was living in Asheville, I had a friend who was now a former friend, um, because we were driving, uh, and there was on the Blue Ridge Parkway, and one of the longest, the longest tunnel on the Blue Ridge Parkway is the Pine Mountain Tunnel. Uh, and when we're going into this tunnel, my now former friend said, hey, I'm going to turn off my, my headlights before we go in here. And I said, excuse me? And then before it's too late, we're in this tunnel. And there's a little bit of ambient light, but he, I don't know why you wanted to do this. But we were never friends after that day. But <laughs> darkness... I mean, talk about your life flashing before your eyes. You know, I'm going to get to heaven one day. God's going to be like, you really put me through it. You know that? So we go up, and, you know, this tunnel is so long, it actually curves. But when you go into it, you can't see the other side. Like, you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's just dark. And so you feel that darkness. You feel that panic. But then when you're around the curve, you, you feel hope because you can see, okay, my idiot friend, we're, maybe we'll survive this moment. But you feel darkness and panic and hope. And so much of that, those emotions, that grouping of emotions you see in the Psalms, particularly Psalm 73 to 79, you feel this overwhelming sense of lament in this grouping uh, right in the middle of what we would call the book of Psalms, that God seems to have rejected his people. In so many of these Psalms, there, there's no silver lining when you read some of these. It is simply sadness. And hey, Sometimes life is like that, right? There's no theological bow to tie around your day sometimes. You simply are going through a crisis. And eventually, what it culminates in a Psalm 88, which theologians have called the dark night of the soul psalm, that you still, though, in the midst of those psalms, 73 to 79, 88, and many, many others, you feel this still, there's a longing for God. You feel this push and pull this tension. It's almost like the book of Lamentations, which was a contemporary of this same time period in this, the middle of the book of Psalms. So like here's, here's Psalm 77, just to give you a taste of, of what this uh, flavor of these Psalms is like. Psalm 77 verses 1 through 4. It'll be on the screen. I cry out to God. Yes, I shout. Oh, that God would listen to me. When I was in deep trouble, I searched for the Lord. All night long I prayed with hands lifted toward heaven, but my soul was not comforted. I think of God, and I moan. 
overwhelmed with longing for his help. You don't let me sleep. I'm too distressed even to pray. So you have to be reminded that when these were being written, the nation of Israel was enslaved by Babylon. In 786 BC, Jerusalem is destroyed, and all of the Jews are taken into captivity, into slavery, into a foreign land. So homes are destroyed, families are wrecked, commerce is over, society is destroyed, and they are taken into a foreign land. Everything that they knew is over. And this is what life feels like sometimes. And to be reminded, though, that even in the midst of that crisis, God is with his people. There's still a longing for hope. Like the author of this psalm is Asaph, who only wrote a few psalms. Obviously, David wrote most of them, but Moses wrote a few. This is a man named Asaph. And he is simply processing his grief. He is, in a sense, in the middle of the mountain. He is overwhelmed by what is surrounding him. And it feels insurmountable. It seems impossible that anything will ever come good out of what I'm experiencing. And he is simply putting it on paper, what he's feeling. And I have to commend him for doing that because some people, when they go through crisis, they tend to internalize it and bottle it up. And that is emotionally, spiritually, even psychologically dangerous. You have to find ways to process what you're feeling when you go through trauma. And that's what he's doing. So what do, you, what do you do when you feel like life has engulfed you or you felt like God has forgotten you? How do you process that? I recommend that you do it somehow because God's not going to be intimidated by your anger or your frustration. He can handle it, trust me. He can handle it. Now, some men will do the stereotypical man thing where you ask them how they're doing through whatever it is and they'll just say what? I'm fine. I'm fine. But you're not fine. You're not fine, but you say, I'm fine. And you're essentially lying to yourself. See, guys, vulnerability is not weakness. It's not weakness. If you want to move forward in the Christian life, you can't do it alone. You have to walk with other men. And ladies, you have to walk with other women. The church is called to be people in relationship together. And sometimes you have to process grief and crisis as a group with other people that know, know you, that know your name, that know your story. And don't just say you're fine when you're not fine. You know, I, I told you this story a few years ago, but it bears repeating that one, my former church in Clemens, one afternoon I was in the sanctuary and I was working on the computer uh, in the balcony and it was totally empty. And as I'm sitting there, a woman comes in the front door and just collapses on the prayer rail and begins literally weeping on the prayer rail. And I knew this woman. She, her son is a young adult at that point, and he was extremely rebellious, making a lot of bad decisions, and leading his life in a horrible way. And I knew her story, and she was coming to God with her grief, with her crisis. She was in the middle of her mountain, if you will, and it seemed insurmountable at the time. And I thought, I prayed for her, of course, but then I also thought, this is the one, this is the best place for her to do that. This is the best place for her to bring her crisis. And that's why, you know, I like a good altar call sometimes, not to get saved every week, but hey, if you've never been saved, that's a good opportunity to do so. But I like a good altar call because it gives you permission to bring your crisis to the church. It it gives you permission to bring your brokenness to God. Where else could you bring it? I've been in Methodist churches where the clergy were so 
opposed to that, and I didn't get it. They're almost afraid of being perceived as a certain kind of Christian. That's ridiculous because people are broken. They need to bring their crisis to God. They could be in the middle of a mountain that is crushing them. And why wouldn't you give them permission to bring their prayers and their grief and their trauma to God? Because that's the one place where you can find the ultimate healing that, will, you, can, that will, you can never let go of, that God will never let go of you. And so when you read these psalms, these groupings of psalms, they give a voice to when you feel like you're, all is lost, when you're in that place where nothing makes sense. And this, to me, gives such a great proof and validity to Christianity, to the Bible itself, because the Bible meets us where we are in our inherent brokenness, in our sin. God is not intimidated by your weakness or your suffering. God's word meets us in the depravity, the fallenness of our world, that God does not ignore our suffering. In fact, he meets us in the middle of it. Now, we, talk, we preach about this kind of thing, you have to be kind of careful because God doesn't cause evil. God doesn't cause suffering. So when people say, oh, you know, it happened for a reason, it means well, right? But when, let's say someone died from cancer and you go to them and go, oh, well, I'm so sorry for your loss, it happened for a reason. Be careful with that because it sounds like God gave them cancer, right? Because if God does not cause evil, but he may use it A, for his glory, or B, for your own good, eventually. Eventually. Like like pressure forming a diamond. Like like a refining through it all. He will will not lead us around the mountain sometimes. I know that's a hard word to hear, but sometimes he just doesn't. Sometimes he will lead us directly through it. And you think, what? How are we going to pull this one off? He may not lead you around it. He may lead you through it. But that's just it, though, that God is with, you see this in these Psalms, God is with his people in the crisis. He never left, he never left the Jews in 786 B.C. He was with them. It's not God apart from the crisis. He was with them in it. And the ultimate answer to suffering, well, the, the ultimate symbol is the cross, the cross of Christ, Right? Like that, that is, the cross doesn't show us what the ultimate answer to suffering is, but the cross, I love the cross we have in here, the cross does show us what the answer to suffering is not. The answer to suffering does not mean that God is indifferent to your crisis, to your trauma, to your pain, that God is distant from you in those moments, that God is not those things. He takes these crises we go through so seriously He's willing to take all of it on himself. All of it. The immensity of suffering and sin and death of the world of all time came upon him that he who had no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So as I said last week, even Jesus quotes Psalm 22 while he's on the cross. While dying for the world, he prays the Psalter. So the best time to look for God is when it looks like all is lost. Because a longing for God, a hunger for God, what does Jesus say in the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness, for they shall be filled. 
promise from God that when you have a hunger for God, you are praying within the will of God. He wants to satisfy that desire. He wants you to hunger for righteousness, and he will bless you in that hunger. If you continue to read Romans 3, I mean, excuse me, Lamentations 3, you see more of this crisis language, but then you also, like a lot of Psalms, you see a shift as well. And that's very much how we are when we pray sometimes, right? God, where are you? Why did you allow this to happen? I don't understand. And yet, I will trust you. And yet, you were faithful years and years ago, even yesterday, right? And you feel this duality. You feel this tension. And so the Lamentations especially, Lamentations 3, 21, excuse me, 19. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You see this shift, right, from crisis to hope. You feel this shift from darkness, panic, the mountains on top of me, to hope. Which leads some, you know, when you read something like that, this makes me ask the question, what, what leads some people to hope more in God in the crisis, and what leads some people not to? You know, some people, when they go through a horrible situation, they blame God, and they blame God. Other people run to him. As that song we sang, they run to the Father. Well, some people will go, if, if our minds can't plumb the depths of the universe for good answers to suffering, well, there can't be any. Well, not really. There's a reason. You just don't know what it is. And sometimes I don't know either. Just because you can't find a reason for it doesn't mean there isn't a reason. The truth is, is that crisis, suffering, only can have meaning in relation to God, right? I have gone and participated in funerals where people did not believe in God that I could tell. The person who passed had no sort of testimony of any kind. And I was, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you get through moments like that. Because at least, at least when God is with you in the crisis in the mountain, at least you know of his promises, of his faithfulness. Apart from God, crisis, suffering is just madness. It's unjust. But if God is your supreme value, there is potential for meaning, for purpose. Eventually, I mean, the sting can eventually fade. God can heal those memories and those wounds, and the sweetness can remain. It's sort of like God's going to teach you perseverance and responsibility, self-control as you pay off the debt. God's teaching you about self-sacrificial love and his provision as you raise those children by yourself. God's healing your soul after the divorce because you are choosing to do the hard work, the internal work of asking questions of yourself and what you could have improved on in those mistakes you made. And God will empower you to move forward. As you grieve the loss of a loved one, 
God will empower you to press on and live the life that they would want you to live, the life of faithfulness. For no one in Christ is ever lost. If you continue reading Romans chapter, I mean, Lamentations chapter 3. Why do I keep saying Romans? Lamentations 3. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. He does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. This made me think in, in Matthew chapter 17, it tells a story of how the disciples are trying to cast a demon out of somebody. And they come back to Jesus and go, we could cast demons out of other people, but this one we couldn't do. And he goes, well, because of, it's because of your faith. And if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could move an entire mountain. Some, he said, some of these evil forces can only be cast out by prayer and fasting. And it got me thinking about this, that why in the world would Jesus use a mountain as an illustration compared to a mustard seed? Has, have you ever seen a mustard seed? It is not big. It is about a few times bigger than a grain of sand. Very, very small. Obviously, we know what mountains look like. Clearly, Jesus is not speaking literally. He is giving an interesting contrast, but he's saying that there are obstacles and even evil in life that we cannot overcome by human intention or will or effort. No literal mountain has ever been moved in the history of the world. Clearly, Jesus is speaking figuratively. The mountain he's referring to is spiritual and supernatural evil. And what the disciples faced in that moment could only be moved by the power of God through them, not their own ability or even their own enthusiasm. It was purely God doing it. Only God can move a metaphorical mountain in your life. Whatever it is that's in front of you, what seems impossible to people is possible for God. Amen? What seems impossible for men and women is possible for God. I, had a, I went to a, a prayer meeting in February of 2022, and I was with other clergy, and a person got up to pray at the start of, the, of this service, and not to promote myself, but as this person started praying, I had a picture in my mind of a mountain like the Rocky Mountains, like huge, huge mountains, foreboding and huge on the horizon, dark, that's what I saw. And in the middle of those mountains was a shaft of light, and it was coming out of the mountain, indicating that there was some sort of passageway through it. And I just thought, okay, that's interesting. And amen, the prayer's over. And then another person gets up, and they start reading Isaiah 40. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. And I remember thinking in that moment, God was saying something. Because usually the spirit and the word are in tandem with each other. You see that a lot in the Bible. If someone has a vision or an idea of what God is saying, the word always comes alongside of it. 
They're never at odds with each other. And in that moment, okay, what, what, what happened in March of 2022? COVID kept happening, yes. Lots of obstacles kept happening. Lots of obstacles happened at this church the past year. But in that day, I had a picture in my mind that whatever was going to happen, I didn't know what was going to happen in the next year and a half. God was saying, you will get through this mountain, but I'm the one, I will be the one that will do it. I will chisel it out in front of you every step of the way. And in such a way that I will be the one that gets the glory, that I will be glorified. Not, God doesn't have an ego, but so that all men and women would know that it was the Lord that had accomplished it. And so I have clung to that promise that there are moments in life when we see mountains in front of us that are impossible for people, but very much possible for God. And whatever mountain is in front of you today, or whatever mountain you are literally inside of right now, and you cannot move through it on your own strength, we're going to have an opportunity for prayer I'm going to be standing over here on one side. My friend Nat is going to be over here on the other side. And if you want us to pray for you, specifically, I want to pray for people to receive the Holy Spirit. Because, friends, you can't live the Christian life on your own strength. Jesus said the Holy Spirit is our counselor, our guide, our advocate, our power source. He will lead us into all truth. And our own ability, friends, I can't do it. It's like Paul would write in 1 Corinthians, hey, this power you see from us, it's not, it's not from us. We're just jars of clay. I'm just, I'm just dirt. The power we have is from God. It's from the power of the Holy Spirit. You ne- we need the Holy Spirit. We need his power in our lives. So if you are in a place of weakness, of being overwhelmed, if you feel despair and darkness, come forward. Let us pray for you. We must bear one another's burdens. This is the high calling of the church. So let's pray together, and as we sing, we invite all to come forward for prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in the midst of the mountain, in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the crisis, you are present with your people. And God, what's impossible for us is very much possible for you. God, give us faith. Give us faith to see, God, that you are faithful, that you are more than capable that whatever relational challenge we're facing, work challenge, addiction, whatever it is, this mountain that's around us that we're facing, let us bear this together, God. And thank you that you empower your people with fire from above, with power, not to live a passive spiritual life, but to live as more than conquerors to see that nothing will separate us from the promises we have in you. Move in this time, God, and bless your people. In Jesus' name.